Take your Bible and make your way to Matthew. Let's go to the book of Matthew in chapter 18. We are studying through Matthew verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph. And uh, if you're new with us, welcome to Matthew. You're about halfway through and uh, we're not finishing anytime soon. So you can come back and you'll be able to merge right in and uh, get acquainted with what's going on here in this record of Jesus' life and ministry that Matthew records for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our confidence that He is the Messiah. Let me read to you a portion of Matthew chapter 18 this morning, and we're going to consider just a few verses from this portion, but let's read it to establish a broader context of where where we are in this section. Let's begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 18. And you'll remember if you've been with us in this study that Matthew begins here with Jesus talking to the disciples about humility as the mark of their lives. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to him, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if, the, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Gracious Father, we come now to this time, this special time of studying your word, and we recognize freshly our desperate need for your intervention in this time. I need grace from you for clarity and communication, for the Spirit's power to be evidenced in the simple preaching of your word, the proclamation of what you have already said. Those who are receiving need grace from you That the Spirit's power might be evident in the reception of the Word and in the understanding of the Word that is impossible apart from His work. We need grace together to receive this Word and to apply it. To not be found at the end of these moments of study. To have gained knowledge that is never turned in love to obedience and action. We do not desire to be puffed up because we know more about Matthew this morning. Father, we desire to look more like Christ because we've been in Matthew this morning. So shape us, move us, mold us into 
the character qualities that define our Lord. May we be easily identified as your sons and daughters because we carry your character around with us. We think your thoughts after you. We live righteousness that marks your character. We pursue your purposes, your kingdom ends, as our own priorities and purposes in this life. So make us known as yours, so that you might be known amongst those that do not know you. For the glory of your name we ask these things. Amen. This morning we're going to study just the verses 7 through 10 in this teaching section from Jesus recorded to us by Matthew. As we come to verses 7 through 9, we come right on the heels of verses 5 and 6, and before that, the study of verses 1 through 4. I want to remind you of something that becomes painfully obvious when we study our scriptures. Kingdom citizens, you all and myself, we come this morning to our meeting as sinner saints. We come together this morning bearing sin with us. We have carried sin into our meeting. We experience sin and its effects throughout our life. Even as we long for the day when we won't, we do. This is universal for us. The joining of our positional righteousness, that is what we are known to be in heaven, what God has declared us to be and what He has granted to us as righteous, as His sons and daughters, imputed righteousness that was given to us. The the matching of our positional righteousness and our practical righteousness, how we live out that righteousness. The, The matching of those two, the blending of those two, the unity of those two will not be culminated until we are in the presence of our Savior. When we see Him, we will be like Him. When we receive our resurrected bodies, our flesh will be done away with. Sin's presence will be removed from us. But today, sin came to church with us. We all hauled in our own portion of sin. It was with us while we talked to our neighbors It was with us when we were singing. It was present while we prayed. It's present now. The remaining principle of sin that is existing in us as sons of Adam in the flesh, those sons of Christ with new spirit, new creation, that sin's presence is an ever difficult reality for us as God's people. Now, we might be quick to confess, I'm a sinner. In fact, I'll sign up for being one of the ones that brought sin to the worship service today. I recognize that sin element in me, the reality that I don't do what I ought to do and that I do what I ought not to do. I'm willing to confess that. I'm willing to say I'm one of the sinners. And, and that's a, an appropriate, an appropriate uh, perspective on our lives. But this morning, before we dive into verses 7 through 9, let me remind you of verses 4 through 10 in the letter that, first, that, that John wrote first. 1 John 3, 4 through 10 says this, and here's where our dilemma comes. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Christ appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil... No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now here's the dilemma. 
we probably, though not making eye contact and doing it, we probably are willing to confess and quickly confess that we brought sin with us this morning. We are sinners in our nature. We bear a flesh that is, it is, is covered in sin. There is no part of us that's untainted from sin. And yet we have come and we've gathered as the people of God in Christ. And John communicates to us that in Christ, there is a victory over sin that then identifies those who are in Christ as those who practice righteousness, not sin. So we're gathered as sinners, but we're gathered as saints, as those who are set apart from sin. So we are both sinners and saints. And in that mess, Scripture assumes and teaches us that sin's presence in the believer's life is not to be an indifferent presence, but rather a defeated presence. There is to be a battle with sin that results in the defeating of sin in the life of the believer. It's not that sin is not present. It is ever present until we receive resurrected bodies, until we see Christ. But its power, its power has been forever removed in Christ. So we're here as sinner saints. We're as kingdom people who have not yet met our king, who have not been made like him in seeing him. And so the scriptures teach us we can assume sin's presence, but we can never, never indifferently live with sin's presence unchecked or undealt with. This is not Christian living. So if we come this morning and our contribution to the sin reality in the green seats at the Little Theater at Kingsburg High is that we come in practicing sin. I mean, sin is having its way. It's undealt with. It's untouched. Be it known that 1 John communicates that that is not Christian living. In fact, that identifies one who professes to be a Christian as actually not a son of God, but a son of the enemy, the father of all lies, the deceiver, the devil. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 commands us as God's people to mortify sin, to kill it, to put to death daily the sin of our lives. That is, we do battle royal with the flesh daily as we exist in Christ, but in sin. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, familiar to many of you, outlines for us the armor of God, the gospel armor of the believer Why do we have armor on? Because we're in a battle. We're in a war that has already been determined. The victory is already sure. But the daily battle wages on and therefore the armor must be placed. And the gospel must be the informing power by which we do battle with sin. Scripture does assume sin for the life of the saint. But it also denounces professions of being saints with total surrender to sin. So many of you, many of you, and myself included, have at times in our Christian lives been incredibly discouraged by the presence of sin. We've been incredibly discouraged in looking at what are the affections given to us by God for Christ and for the glory of God. We desire obedience. We desire to live in a way that would bring pleasure and glory to our Father. And yet we are discouraged by the reality of the day-to-day sin in our lives. Often, often, our discouragement with sin is a direct result of our lack of engaging in battle against sin. I know many of you who have been around here for a while have heard us say, let's be sure that we're actually battling sin when we say we're battling sin. Sometimes we say, pray for me, I'm really battling with lust. And we're not. Actually, what we mean to say is, please pray for me because I've surrendered completely to lust for the last week. Or I'm really struggling with worry, but I'm not struggling. I'm actually just worrying. So please pray for me because I'm sinning. See, this is a fundamental difficulty that we face as we come to our scriptures. The Bible does assume sin's presence, but it assumes for the believer an ongoing war with sin. 
And Jesus brings that war right into our lap in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Every human being is plagued from birth with the presence of sin and the unstoppable power of sin. Apart from grace, you can do nothing but sin. Even your righteousness is sin. But for the kingdom citizen, for the little one, for the believer, referenced here in Matthew 17, Matthew 18, the one who lives in Christ, that individual no longer exists under sin's authority. Matthew chapter 6 communicates sin's power has been removed for those who are in Christ. Its presence, yes, it makes us long to be with Christ. The Spirit groans within us for the culmination of our salvation. We do not come to the presence of sin as we did before Christ. We come now with power over sin and outside of the authority of sin. So the presence of sin in the flesh, the remaining principle of sin, is an ever-present reality until we see Christ. So we got to fight. And this morning, we get marching orders from our general about how we go about doing battle with sin. And in particular, how it is that we think about sin and perceive sin and, and the vantage point with which we look at sin. So at times in our lives, sin is so real to us that we, we can almost touch it. The conviction of the Spirit is so real and the, the desperate condition of our sin is so real that we can f- almost feel it. Our Scriptures teach us that for those who are aware of sin and are not dealing with sin, even the physical body bears the weight of that sin. You remember when you came to Christ, when your eyes were open to the truth, when you saw the glory of Christ and all that the cross offered you, that for many of you, you describe that as a weight being lifted, like a physical weight lifted off of you. Why is that? Because the guilt of sin was present in that moment and you were aware of it. Jesus, this morning, brings us to the perspective we must have on sin which I believe goes much deeper than our American, worldly, soft perspective would naturally take us. Let's not forget the overarching theme here in this final section from Matthew is that the wisdom of heaven is gleaned by observing the life of Jesus and by applying the instruction from Jesus. So big things are happening in this final section leading up to the triumphal entry and to the cross. Big things are happening here at the end of Matthew. And in this portion of Matthew, in this final teaching portion, let's be reminded that the big thing that's happening is that God's thoughts are being transferred to us. Wisdom is coming to us through the Word of God as we see Christ and as we hear Christ. And this morning we're going to hear Him. And this morning we have the opportunity to gain wisdom from heaven about sin. For those of you who are visiting, isn't this great? This is what you thought you would have at Grace Church of the Valley. Maybe you did. Um, Maybe you did think that's exactly what you would have. This morning we get wisdom from sin. This is a gift. It's unpopular. It's surely unpopular. It has nothing to do with seekers or crafting a strategic marketing plan. But this is wisdom from God, the God of the heavens who created us. So let it be known this morning, the severity of sin's consequences determines the severity with which kingdom citizens deal with sin. Let me say that again. This will be the theme. This is the big idea for this morning. The severity of sin's consequences determines the way in which the kingdom people of God deal with sin. So why is it that at times I feel powerless or I am powerless in my battle with sin? I believe one of the reasons we struggle to fight sin appropriately is because the severity of sin's consequences is not bearing down on us as it should. And this morning we'll see Jesus right from the text. He will make it evident to us that the severity of sin's consequences determines the severity with which the kingdom citizens deal with sin. Now he started into this in verse 6. Let's start there and we'll launch from 6 into verses 7 through 9. Jesus started... Talking about the severity of sin in verse 6. He was leading into verse 7 when he said, Whoever causes one of these little ones 
That is the children of the kingdom, God's people. Those who have been humbled to the point of dependence like a child. Whoever causes one of those individuals who believe in Christ to sin. Whenever that happens, here's the better scenario. It would have been better prior to doing that to have a a massive stone tied around the neck and to be tossed off the bridge into the deep water. That, that's the better scenario. See, this, this is what Jesus is going to do, and he's going to do it in a violent, graphic way this morning. He presents the consequence of sin and the consequence of leading another to sin as so severe that the alternative loses its radical sense. I mean, the thought of Jesus saying anybody should have a rock tied around their neck and thrown into the water is hard to reckon with unless the consequence of the alternative is so severe. And it is because it's eternal. Those who stand in the way of the people of Christ stand in the way of Christ and they bear eternal consequences, severe eternal consequences. Which then relegate the comparison to a Violent human death, relatively reasonable. From that, we move to verse 7. And with that backdrop, we find two themes about sin. Two themes that clarify wisdom from heaven regarding sin for us. These are right from the verses. Verse 7 will be the first theme. Verses 8 and 9 will make up the second theme. Theme number one, external tempters are condemned. What is heaven? How does heaven view sin in the life of the believer? How does the king of the kingdom view sin in the life of his kingdom citizens? Well, first and foremost, tempters towards sin are condemned. We've got a word that begins verse 7 that is basically unused in our colloquial English. Woe. Um, because the way we use it and spell it is entirely different than what is meant here. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world! For temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe again to the one by whom the temptation comes. I would think that most of us use woe as an abbreviation of woa, which is some kind of exclamation that means we're surprised. Woa, down to woe. None of that transports into the translation that we have in verse number 7. When Jesus says woe, he has one of two things he's trying to communicate. Either he's saying there should be pity. There should be pity and there is pity in this circumstance. Um, Let me draw your mind back to Isaiah chapter 6. In the King Uzziah's death, the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he respond with? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. That's pity. Pity is mine. Pity should be on me because I am desperately unclean in the presence of holiness. That's one One concept of woe. Woe. Woe to those who tempt. But there's a second woe concept, and I believe this one is in keeping with the intention that Matthew gives us in recording Jesus' words. And that is a sure condemnation. A sure judgment. Woe. As in, there's no altering the course. This is established. This is Matthew 11. You remember these verses if you've been with us in Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. Jesus said, Woe to that city. Woe to this city. Because with all of the revelation of Jesus in their presence, they rejected. Woe to them. The day of judgment will be hotter for them than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember this? This is sure fire judgment. Woe to you. There's no altering the course. And here we find this woe connected to those who would be, who would be catalyst for sin. In the life of kingdom people. So theme number one. Principle number one. When heaven views the sin of God's people. And sees sin in our lives. Understand that the severity of sin. Is directly connected to those who would provide for sin. Tempters. Those who would offer an easy path toward sin. Jesus says it's the world. Identified in the first part of verse 7. Understand that the cosmos here, the world, is not some vague theoretical world system. This is the world of people. And we know it's the world of people because in the second half of verse 7, he says, by whom the temptation comes. 
So it's people. It's not by what it comes. It's not some um, inanimate object that provides temptation. This is people. People in the world, real, living, breathing people, can be causes for temptation to sin in the life of the people of the kingdom. And woe to them. They are under God's condemnation and judgment. The second half of verse 7, Jesus explains why this woe has been declared in this first half. The stumbling that leads to sin that's offered up in temptation by these individuals. Here's the explanation. For it's necessary that temptations come. Temptation is a part of the, the, the overarching sovereign plan of God. It's not outside of God. He's not out of control when temptation is happening. But he is untainted by it, nor does he tempt anyone with it. James chapter 1, verse 13 says he is disconnected from guilt and temptation. There are vehicles of temptation, and those vehicles are culpable for their role. This woe is declared because though it is necessary for temptation to exist within our sin-fallen world, those who would take up the role of tempter are under God's judgment. They are culpable, accountable for their tempting role. So, when heaven views sin in the life of kingdom people, understand that tempters are condemned. That is external temptation. The vehicles by which we receive temptation as God's people stand in condemnation. This is how heaven thinks. This is Christ sharing heaven's thoughts with us. Now, second theme, principle that comes from these verses. Verses 8 and 9 communicate to us internal tempters must be cut off. So temptation exists and it exists from the outside with those who would offer a clear path to sin and it, and it operates inside even within the physical realm of your person as you are lending yourself to sin. Again, James does our, our soul and our understanding well by sharing with us temptation comes from the desires of our heart. So if you're Considering temptation, do not consider it only as something out there, but as something within. The enemy of sin is present with you. You walked in with it, you'll walk out with it. And how you respond to it will be directly connected to how you view its severity and the consequences of it. Maybe this morning you think, I don't think there's any tempters on my radar. You know, I'm scanning the radar here. And I've got no blips. I don't even know what a tempter looks like. Um, I have no understanding of how to identify someone who is tempting me or something even internally that is tempting me. When I play basketball, and this could probably happen a lot easier now after the years of decay that have taken place. When I play basketball, there is a convenient trick that you can do on defense uh, if my coaching dad were here, he'd say it's a lazy man's defense. But you can open up your stance and offer the opposing player on offense the opportunity to go by you. You can open up your stance in a way that makes him feel free as a bird heading down the lane. Unbelievable. I blew right past him. He has no awareness that he's involved in a trap. No awareness that I've actually tempted him into something that is for his demise. Because I'm lurking and I'm coming behind and I'm going to get him. I'm going to steal it or I'm going to block him or he's just going to blow by me and score. But I'm, I'm still, I'm, I've tempted him and he's unaware of the temptation. For, for many of us, I believe we are like the guy driving past the open stance defense. I, we're just unaware. It's as if we don't have any radar set up to know that the enemy is after us, that sin is present, and therefore we never do battle. We don't have any... We don't have any view of sin, and our lives look so much like the world around us. Because the stance was opened, we feel nothing. And the while we move down that temptation path, we walk further and further away from our Christ. So external tempters are condemned, they are deadly. If you don't identify them and see where they're leading, you will follow suit. Number two, internal tempters then must be cut off. Now this is where it just gets outside of our realm of understanding. Jesus says, 
If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And verse 9, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I mean, let's not just sit here and act like this is a normal way to talk to people. He said, cut it off and throw it away. And obviously, because you're all looking at me with two eyes, none of you have taken him up on the instruction. Okay? So we have a fundamental problem when we come to Matthew 18 in that none of us apply this as if he means cut off limbs. So what does he mean? And I obviously agree with you. Two eyes, four hands, four limbs, two hands, two feet. I agree with you. That leaves us with a difficult question. Jesus moves now from the severity which with the kingdom people need to look at sin from the outside being offered to sin from the inside, from within the person being lived out in their members, in their body parts, in their hands and in their feet and in their eyes. Now, before we dive into this and really let this sit on us hard, let me understand or let me help you understand the the broader concept of Scripture when it comes to these passages, these verses. Nowhere in your Bible, nowhere in your Bible will you find instruction that says there's some physical way to deal with your heart problem. Like as if there's a mutilation that you can do that will stop your heart's sin. I mean, this is Jesus. And we studied Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, communicating that the heart is behind the sin. This is the same Jesus who said, if, if you're lusting, you're already committing the sin of adultery at its core level in your heart. And then relayed, but if your eyes are involved, remove them. In other words, sin is always seen as from the heart and then always seen in action. It will always express itself physically. We can identify sin in the fruits of sinful heart condition. Colossians chapter 2, write this down if you're taking notes. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, tell us no system, no days, no rules about don't touch that, don't touch this, no boundary lines can stop the indulgence of the flesh. They can't heal the problem. Jesus is not here telling us that there's some physical way to get over sin. But he is relaying to us the severity of sin's consequences, which would make these kind of activities totally reasonable. So don't miss the contrast that he provides. It's either life or it's hell fire for eternity. This is real fire, burning, torment, without end for all who die apart from Christ. The point of this picture, this mutilation picture, is painted by Jesus to to give us the severity of sin's consequences so that any step we would take to eradicate sin, to cut off its effects, to eliminate it from our lives as we do war against sin would seem reasonable. Why would it be reasonable to opt for a stone around the neck and dive into the water? Because the alternative is an eternal hell. The choice is easy. Stone, water, heaven, no stone, no water, 20 more years, hell forever. You see, Jesus is painting the severity of sin and its consequences. And he paints that picture in a personal way in verses 8 and 9 to allow us to glean heaven's wisdom as we look at sin in our own lives. Brothers and sisters, sin unchecked leads to hell. Those who practice sin go to hell. And hell is forever. And it's awful. Eternity is too long. And hell is too hot for anything, including your hands, feet, or eyes, to be deemed worthy in exchange. You see that? You see that contrast? Sin is so severe that if it goes undealt with, it lands the individual who is condemned by it in an eternity without opportunity for grace. And for the kingdom people of God to view sin in their own life as anything less than the very fruit of what used to be, the very element that sent their Savior 
our king who is speaking these words to the cross where he bore the full wrath of God for us is to shortcut, to minimize, and no doubt, no doubt, eventually, to live in sin. To have sin elements just going almost unchecked in us. So be reminded this morning from this wisdom from heaven that no body part is worth eternity. Now, there's another question that arises when we read this. Can your hand cause you to sin? Uh, There is no connection point in Scripture to some kind of robotic understanding of the body. You've all seen this kind of picture played out where this hand is, you know, coming after the guy who's looking at it. And it's his. And so he's trying to get it away. Oh, my goodness, it's going to get me. Okay, there is no disconnection of your limbs from you. Your immaterial you is directly connected to your limbs. Therefore, when your hand steals, your hand is not, you do not get to look at your hand as some impersonal part and say, listen, judge, I didn't steal. My hand stole. So I I know you think I did, but I didn't. I actually was watching and I was actually telling my hand, don't. And it did. You see, the Bible doesn't communicate this and that's not what Jesus is communicating here. The scriptures nowhere teach that there is a causal effect of sin in the limbs that is somehow um, apart from the immaterial part of the, the person. You sin because your heart wants sin and then your body lives out that sin. But in the cause of sin, as Jesus describes it here, it is the expression of sin. The expression of sin is seen in where the feet go. The expression of sin and the cause of its guilt are in the hand. If the hand doesn't steal, you're not a thief. So you could say, what caused me to be a thief was my hand stole. And it would be fair to say, what caused your hand to steal? My heart that coveted after what was not mine. So Jesus says, if your hand or foot or eye cause you to sin, understand we're not talking about primary cause, as in it's indefinitely disconnected from you. It's very connected to you. The heart drives your mouth, your eyes, your feet, your hands. But only the physical, the physical body part is seen here in its sinful expression. This is no different than Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. In fact, let's turn there. Let's do something with our hands that's meaningful. Let's go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. Let me show you this from Romans. The Apostle Paul helps us understand sin and our battle with sin in Romans chapter 6 in a way that if you've not, if you've not interacted deeply with, you've missed out. So let me encourage you to come back to this section. We can't do it justice now, but... I'll reference it. You can come back and give yourself to it this week, potentially. He goes through this chapter and he gives an indicative. He'll give a statement of fact and then he'll give a a command following that statement of fact. So in verse number five, we say for he says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, so there's a freedom that is indicative. It is declared about us. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Why? Because it's been, it's been conquered. But you must not let it reign as if it has been unconquered to make you obey its passions. And then verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you see the members part there? That's body parts. That's you materially. That's hands. That's eyes. That's feet. When we sin, we present our body parts for sin to take place. Jesus says here, if you understand the severity of the consequence of sin, no body part is worth maintaining in exchange for the eternity that will be spent for those who have sin undealt with. So without a biblical view of sin, there's a few things that happen to us. One We never relate to tempters appropriately. We do not see temptation 
as what it really is, which is an offer for condemnation. So verse 7 means nothing unless sin's consequences are eternally severe. We'll never rightly deal with our own sin. We will never take drastic steps, which are not drastic in light of eternity. We'll never take drastic steps to eradicate sin, to identify it, to kill it, to deal with it with grace. So we will be lazy in our battle with sin. We will be out of shape soldiers who could never pass basic training because we don't see sin appropriately. Thirdly, we will never have compassion on those who wander in sin, which is verses 10 through 14. You see, sin, unless it is understood in all of its severity, will leave us cold-hearted and self-righteous. We will never be marked by the compassion of heaven unless we see the severity of sin in the wanderer. If we don't see sin in a biblical vantage point, we'll never confront and restore our brothers who are sinning. I mean, if sin isn't that bad and its consequences aren't really that bad, then why would I go through the pain of actually awkwardly telling my brother, I think you're in sin. I, I, man, we were talking the other day and I heard you say this. I, I can't reconcile this with the word. I, I, I'm, I'm sure this is sin. Do you see that as sin? Why would we do that? Why would we say the anger that I saw in you concerned me? Because that's the very thing that Christ died for. You were sinning. We would never confront. We would never say, and if, in, in that moment of confronting for anger, if the brother said, I, I wasn't angry, we would never bring back the other guys who were golfing with us and say, brother, you were. You were angry. And that's a sinful expression of your heart. If you said, I'm angry now because I wasn't angry then and I refuse to repent and it came before the church. Why would we do all of this unless we see the severity of sin? Unless sin becomes real to us again, freshly aware that it has eternal damnation connected to it. The wage of sin is death, period. We will never respond to those who are sinning with gracious confrontation and restoration. And finally, at the end of this chapter, we will never be marked by humble forgiveness. Verses 21 to 35. So Jesus is driving home the eternal consequence of sin as the very motivation for radical dealing with sin in our lives. It's better for you to do anything except give in and live in sin because that comes with an eternal damning consequence. Now, one gospel note, just to make sure that we're not racing into legalism, which this passage, I believe, if it's misinterpreted, leads us right down this path of legalism, which is I'll just gut it out and I'll just quit sinning. I'm just going to hunker down and I'm going to get nasty with sin this week. I mean, arms are going to be cut, eyes out. We're going wild this week for sin. Let's, let's be careful. Let's be careful to bring the gospel to bear on this. Jesus is talking to his people who have been granted his righteousness. There is no amount of cutting off of anything that will ever earn you a place in heaven. We only respond this way to sin because we have been granted a place in heaven. We have been given righteousness. We have been granted something that wasn't ours. We've had something credited to us. We've been made righteous. We're positionally righteous. Therefore, out of gratitude from our hearts, desire to glorify the one who saved us, we pursue this kind of righteous application. In total dependence upon Christ, we do not do this to earn God's favor, but because God's favor has been freely given to us. Only those who are made righteous can pursue righteousness. So don't misunderstand. God will not be more impressed this week with you because you cut something off than if you didn't. He's impressed with you because He's impressed with His Son. And you exist in relationship to Him through His Son. You're covered in His Son. You cannot better His love for you. You cannot better His affections and desires for you. But as one who has received His affections and desire and righteousness, you then pursue with reckless abandon the application of that righteous living in your life out of gratitude and independence upon your Savior has given you the spirit of life within. 
I don't know if I'm getting this across, but the severity of sin's consequence determines the severity with which the kingdom citizens deal with sin. We don't fight sin because we just don't think it's that bad. Or we fight some sins because we put them in the bad category and then all these other fruits of our flesh, we just think, yeah, but those are the same fruits of the flesh that everybody does. We hear things like, well, we're all sinners. Yes, but we're not just sinners. We're saints who have been removed from the power of sin and who understand the consequences of sin and the consequences that were born at the cross. And that radically alters how we deal with sin. So let me ask you a few questions and we'll be done. Do you recognize tempters from the world as tempters? And do you deal with temptation? External temptation is real, brothers and sisters. And it should be radical steps taken. Things that would make you different than your culture. Things that may make you different than your Christian friends and family. Because you know that this is an area where temptation enters into my life. I remember in college having a a faithful, believing instructor who reminded us that it had been years since he had been to a mall. Why? Because every time he went to the mall... There were bigger-than-life pictures of half-naked people presented to him. Offers of lust. Go ahead. Just look. And if you don't want to look, we're going to make it so big, you can't help it but look. So he had taken some radical step to remove a tempter from his life. To see it as temptation. To see sin's consequences and to deal radically with it. There's no way to apply this to your life. Uh, and the application was not, don't go to the mall. There's no way to apply it. This is the Spirit of God's work in you for you to consider, where is it that I'm tempted? How is it that I'm tempted? Sin is sin. And I'm going to identify sin according to what the Word says about it. Am I worrying? Sin. Am I griping and grumbling? Sin. Am I gossiping? Sin. Am I stealing from my employer? By my laziness or my distraction, sin. What is sin? And then what are the vehicles that are being offered from the outside for that sin to be accomplished easily? I want to cut them off. I want to see their condemnation appropriately. Number two, do you battle and kill sin with an eye to the severity of its consequences? And therefore, do you value Christ in the battle with sin? You see, to remove Christ from the battle with sin is to set ourselves up for a human achievement competition within the church. I've done more cutting off than you have. If I had four eyes, I would have plucked them out. And they're both gone. And I've created holes where other eyes could have been because I, I would pluck those out too. That's what happens when we get to the point where we say, dealing with sin is all about me. It's a, it, it becomes a performance competition And the church is a place where Jesus Christ is trusted supremely. Do not remove Christ. And in removing Christ, lose the grace necessary for your battle with sin. So see the consequence. See the severity of sin. See the ugliness of its grip on our lives. See it in our flesh. Identify it. Notice it. And then run to the cross. Because that's where it's been paid for. And that's where grace flows for you to do battle and have victory over it. So do you recognize temptation and tempters and respond rightly? Do you battle and kill sin with a recognition of its severity which makes you treasure Christ? And then finally, do you live with a Romans thirteen fourteen perspective in life? Romans chapter 13 and 14 Let me read it to you just because I want to get the full effect of everything that Paul says to us in this one powerful verse. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If we're not recognizing tempters as tempters, if we're not battling sin and killing it on a daily basis, then we are most definitely not living out obedience to Romans 13, 14, which tells us 
to live in Christ in such a way as to set aside every provision for our flesh. What is a provision for your flesh? Well, what are the provisions for your life? Food, covering, shelter. These are provisions that we give thanks to when we eat. Thank you for your provisions for us. Provisions for the flesh are those things that make the flesh capable of living without restraint. I don't know what they are. Maybe they're the television or computer. Maybe there are relationships that have gone unchecked. Maybe there are sin patterns with speech. Maybe there are secret sins that are unknown to those around you. I don't know what they are, but I know that there's provision being made for the flesh if they're going without any redeeming effect upon them. See the temptation as temptation. Identify tempters as tempters and flee from them. View sin with all of its severity so that Christ is treasured and you do battle and kill it on a daily basis with grace from his throne room because of the cross. And then finally, make no provision. Be careful as you live as a believer. You are a saint, but you are not in heaven. You're on earth, which means you have a flesh. And I have a flesh. We bring sin to every moment of every day. Don't undersell it. Don't undervalue it. See it in all of its severity. See it in all of its ugliness. And see Christ in all of his glory. Who has conquered it. Who has removed its power from us. And who we anticipate will remove its presence from us when he returns. Which makes us cry. Come quickly Lord Jesus. Father thank you for these verses. They are simple. We have not done them justice. Yet I trust that you will inform our conscience with the severity of sin's consequence so that we might deal radically with it in our lives. May there be no part of us that is set apart from, from our attention. May there be no compartment that we, we don't examine, that we don't let your spirit probe into. Teach us to use your definitions for our activities, not our culture's. Teach us to see sin as sin and help us to be reminded that sin leads to eternal death. As your people, may we be radical in our response to sin because of the severity of its consequences. May that motivate us as we relate to others. Compassion for those who are wandering in sin, pursuit of those who are in sin with confrontation, and humble forgiveness of all those who are in sin who are restored. We desire for this to be fruit of your work at Grace Church of the Valley. So that those around us who do not know you might see that there are lives transformed here within this family. We'll give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.